0: You're listening to audio from Harvest Bible Chapel, Philadelphia, where we believe in preaching the authoritative power of God's word each and every week. For more content and information about our church, visit HarvestPhiladelphia.org. Colossians chapter 3 this morning as we continue in our series, Embracing the Supremacy of Jesus Christ. And as we've discovered throughout this series, we've learned that um, embracing the supremacy of Christ really just means giving him permission to reign over our lives, to have ultimate authority. And in chapter 3, we're really getting a good look at what that looks like in our lives. And so, we're going to see here in this text that when Jesus really does reign supreme over our lives, he transforms our environments in which we live, and he transforms the relationships in which we enjoy. And we're going to see those, two environments and three relationships. Let's see if you can pick them up here in the text. Chapter 3, verse 18. It says this wives submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord and husbands love your wives and do not be harsh with them children obey your parents in everything for this is pleasing to the Lord and fathers do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged slaves or bondservants obey in everything those who are your earthly masters not by a uh, way of eye service as people pleasers but with sincerity of heart fearing the Lord Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive an inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your slaves, your bond servants, justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Now, we see here in this text that there are two environments, both in the home and out of the home at work, that Jesus wants to reign supreme over, and we have three different relationships, husbands and wives, children and parents, and also employers and employees, and we're going to explain that when we get there, but you will see that these several categories all require Jesus to transform their fundamental nature. You may be saying to yourself, well, I don't find myself in several of these categories. That's okay, because many of the Colossians didn't either. But what Jesus is doing is he's establishing a framework for us to see how his supremacy over these environments and relationships transforms them. And so what we're going to do is we're going to take the text actually in reverse. So we're going to start at chapter 4, verse 1, and we're going to work our way backwards. Why? Because I wanted to do something different today. Sound good? We usually go in order. I'm going to go backwards. Uh, But I do want to say this. um, I think it's important for us to note that in the text, if you have it in the wrong order, you're going to get things out of order in life. Things have to flow out of the home into everything else. And if things in the home aren't healthy, everything else is going to fall apart. So I say that as I go backwards in the text. And I'm going to begin with the first environment, which is work. And we find that in verses 22 through 4.1. And it says again here in the text, Slaves, bondservants, in everything, those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye services, people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, not for men, knowing that from, that from the Lord you will receive an inheritance as your reward. You are servants serving the Lord Jesus Christ, for, what, for the wrongdoer will be paid back, the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your slaves, your bond servants, justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven." So first, let's talk about this environment of work that Jesus wants to transform. And I'm going to put a title over this of employers, employees. But let's recognize first here in the text that the text uses slaves and masters. Now, a lot of ink has been spilled over this, and frankly, a lot of straw men arguments have been raised to um, attack the Bible because of these verses. And let's admit right away that these, this text in particular has been used throughout history the wrong way to abuse other people. Amen? Incorrectly. Amen? but let's make sure that we understand right here very clearly that Paul is not condoning slavery. He is not. In fact, if we understand that the book of Colossians was written at the same time as the book of Philemon, and these two letters were delivered at the same time to Colossae. So Philemon arrived in Colossae before it arrived to Philemon himself, and the Colossians would have written, or I'm sorry, would have read this this letter to Philemon. And here's why that is important, because the book of Philemon petitions the freedom of a slave called Onesimus. You see, Paul right away is already arguing for the freedom of slaves here in the Greco-Roman Empire. And we also understand that the principles of the gospel, the intrinsic value of every person created in the image of God and the freedom found in the gospel of Jesus Christ were the things, the underpinnings that undid all forms of slavery throughout history, whether in Rome or in America. Are we tracking are we tracking? Okay. So to give some context here of what's going on, approximately 40% of the population in Greco-Roman culture was considered slave. Uh, many people were slaves because they had been conquered. As Rome had conquered their nation, they were brought in as slaves into the Roman Empire. Others were criminals and they were put to work within the context of the Roman Empire. But the mass majority of people were, were called indentured servants. If you don't know what that is, back during Paul's day, a lot like employment, it worked where you would enter into a contract with somebody for payment. You would enter in a contract for four to seven years, and you would work for promised payment in return for the contract that you fulfilled. That also meant that these people, they had government rights and protections over them. So they were not slaves. But the problem was, in the Roman government, many of the people who entered into the contract were taken advantage of and treated like slaves. Are we tracking? That's very important for us to understand as we read these verses, because these verses are not the same as what we've seen even in American history. So he says this in chapter 4, verse 1. Masters, treat your slaves, your bond servants, and notice what he says here: justly and fairly. Or if we were to put another word over this, treat them as equals. That's transformative in these verses. Amen. When we see how these verses maybe have been used by some to subjugate others, Paul is actually saying, those people who may be subjugated to you right now, elevate them and treat them as an equal. And what Paul is doing here in the text is he's saying, here's the reason why. It's because those of you who are masters over other people, you must remember that you have a master as well. Look at the text. Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly as equals, knowing why, that you also have a master in heaven, and how does your master in heaven treat you as an equal? What did Jesus say in John chapter 15, verse 15? I no longer call you servants, but what? Friends. You see, Jesus, the gospel Obliterates all of this idea of subjugation and superiority and hierarchy. He obliterates all that. And he says, Employers, treat your employees as equals, treat them with care and concern. Employers, maybe you're here this morning and you're over a group of people who work for you. What is Paul saying here for us this morning? Treat your employees as your equals. Now, that doesn't mean that you need to be Michael Scott and you need to ensure that every employee is your best friend or your BFF. You don't need to do that. But what it does mean is that you need to show those, pers- those people who work for you and maybe work under you and are their livelihood is dependent on you, you need to show them that you care about them, that you're concerned for their livelihood, that you care about them more than- as a person than as a means of prosperity, amen? And when you show them how do you show them that you care? Well, look at chapter 3, verse 12. Use these characteristics. Put these things on with those who work underneath you. Verse 3, chapter 3, verse 12 says this. Put on, then, as God's chosen, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with your employees, and if they have a complaint against another, forgiving them. Verse 14, and above all these, put on love for those who work for you. Employees, if you had a boss who treated you like that, would you love working for him? I would too. But do you see how Jesus transforms these environments? If we treat each other like this in the workplace, Jesus transforms. But he also says for servants here in this text, in verse 22, slave servants, bond, Uh, servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Jesus Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong that he has done. And there is no partiality. Isn't that a tremendous promise for those who would take these verses and abuse them? That God is the justifier and the avenger of those who would twist and abuse Scripture? Amen. And so what is Paul saying here? He's saying this. um, Verse 23 here is the key. Verse 23 here is the key for us to understand these verses in their proper context. It's like a lens. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. When we view this section of scripture, 22 through 25, it can be rather challenging. Oh, I've got to do everything that my boss tells me. Well, when we understand that we're actually working for the Lord, that makes it a lot easier. I remember hearing a story um, of a guy who saw three people hewing stone, hewing stone, who walked up to the first guy and he says, "Uh, excuse me, what are you doing? He says, I'm hewing stone. What does it look like? He said, okay, thanks. He went to the second guy. He said, excuse me, what are you doing? And he says, well, I'm making $100 a week. Okay. Goes to the third guy and he asks him, excuse me, sir, what are you doing? He says, I'm building a cathedral. You see, when we look past what we're doing to who we're doing it for, it makes obedience in the workplace not necessarily easy, but it can be joyful. Amen. Let's look to Jesus. Think about Jesus in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. These are hard verses for us to swallow, I think. And that's kind of why I wanted to hit these first. Hit the hardest section first. But think about Jesus. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame. What was the joy set before him? It was obedience to his father. When he saw who he was going to the cross for, for his father to honor his will, and made what he was doing much more bearable. He was able to endure the cross, even though he despised its shame, because he knew who he was doing it for. Here's what we need to understand. If we work in anywhere... Doctor, teacher, banker, truck, driver, lawyer, whatever it is. Here's what we need to understand as employees. Our value is not tied up in what we do. It's tied up in who we do it for. When you go back to your nine to five tomorrow, you're not just working for your boss to get a paycheck. You are serving the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Now, that's the first place in which the first environment and the first set of relationships that Jesus can radically transform is, first of all, the work context and our relationship to employees, employers. But the second context that Jesus wants to transform is the home. The second uh, environment he wants to transform is the home. And we see two sets of relationships here, fathers and children, and then husbands and wives. So let's take a look at fathers and children first. It says in verse 20, Children, obey your parents And what is the next word? (laughs) This is, this is, this is, this sermon I feel is like operation crowd reduction. Like if you're, you're here for the first time at harvest, you're like, what on earth is this? This is the hard stuff of scripture, amen? But let's look at what it says. All scripture is God breathed and given us, Right? correction, rebuke, construction, and in righteousness, that the man and woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work? Do we believe that every word is inspired by God and given to us for our good? Okay, then let us lift up our voices and say it. Children, obey your parents in? Uh, <laughs> and I heard all the parents say it. <laughs> what, is, what is this talking about? This has always been a head-scratcher. And, and look at verse 21. Let's start there. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Now, I've always thought to myself that these, this verse was a little bit backwards. Like, shouldn't it read, uh, children, don't provoke your parents? Like, did Paul, like, mess up when he was writing? Or did we get the transcription? Oh, like, what happened here? Um, well, here's what's happening. Give you some context. Uh, fathers during Paul's day had and held tyrannical power. Uh, a father during Paul's day could sell His children could ship them away at any time, could put a child to death without question from the government. So teenagers, if you think you have it bad right now, be thankful you didn't live in the Greco-Roman world. Amen? All right. And so fatherhood in today's culture is so radically different from then. If we think of fatherhood as as Homer Simpson, Peter Griffin, passive, uh, detached, inactive fatherhood, back then fathers ruled with an iron fist. And oftentimes when they would rule in the home with an iron fist, it would provoke their children to rebel against the faith. And the reality is there's still a lot of fathers in this day and age who still tend to rule with an iron fist you either do what I say or there will be hell to pay. There are still a lot of fathers that parent that way. And what Paul is telling us here in the text is when we a parent with law, with an iron fist, when we rule over our children in a harsh and domineering way, it actually provokes our children to run from the very faith that we want them to adopt. And so he's saying, fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged in the faith. And this is a good word for me. To be reminded of how my heavenly father treats me. To be reminded that my heavenly father sent his one and only son. And how did his one and only son treat me? Well, look back at chapter 3, verse 12. These are the characteristics of the Lord Jesus Christ and the characteristics that Jesus exerts toward me That he is compassionate in heart, kind and humble, meek and patient. Bearing with Matt Townsend when he is rebellious and ornery and difficult and stubborn. Forgiving Matt Townsend when he doesn't do what he knows he is to do. Verse 14, loving him above all else. That is how my heavenly father treats me. And fathers here in this room, you are called to treat your children the same. Fathers, treat your children as your heavenly father treats you. And fathers, there's a balance here, isn't there? Uh, Paul is not saying you are to never discipline your children. Paul is not saying here that you are to spare the rod and then spoil your child. In fact, um, the writer of Hebrews reminds us in chapter 12, verses 5 and 6, that the proof of your love is that you discipline your children. The proof of your love is that you teach them there are consequences to bad behavior and to wrong attitudes, that you are training them up for their life ahead. But what Paul is balancing here is he's saying, don't be unfair, fathers, don't give your children unrealistic expectations they can never live up to. Fathers, do not be harsh and short and patient, condescending, angry and aggressive. And can I just confess to you that this verse is for me. When I began my parenting journey, I damaged my first child with my anger. I never let it get out of control, but I never thought twice about yelling at my child to get her to do what I wanted. And it took years for God to work that out of me. And what worked that out of me was the fact that my Heavenly Father has never once yelled at me. Never once been condescending to me. Never once been short with me. Never once been impatient with me. Never once been aggressive with me. My Heavenly Father is my example. And listen what Tony Evans says. Dad, some of us, we need to step up. Ladies, can I get an amen? We need our men to step up. And here's what Tony Evans says about this. As goes the man, so goes the family. As goes the family, so goes the church. As goes the church, so goes the community. As goes the community, so goes the nation. So if you want to change your nation, you got to change your community. If you want to change your community, you got to change your church. If you want to change your church, you got to change the family. And if you want to change the family, you got to change the man. Dudes, bros, guys, we got to step up. We're going to talk about that in a little bit more. But children, it's your turn. Here's the fun part. Look back at verse 20 children obey your parents in what? (laughs) Really? Really? Like everything? Well, no, not when it comes to abuse or if your parents ask you to do something illegal. That's why we have the church and that's why we have the law. Right? Children, teenagers, we stand here ready to help defend you when you exist in an abusive, illegal home that's asking you, parents who are asking you to do things that you know are harmful to your health and abusive. We want you to come and tell us. We need you to come and tell us. And we will raise up and defend you. We promise you that. If your parents are asking you to do things that are illegal, we will help you. We will defend you. You need to go to the law. But in everything else, children strive to obey. Strive to obey. And why? Well, I think there's a good reason in that if you never learn how to submit in the home, your entire life you're going to struggle with submission to everything else. Because the reality is you never step out from underneath authority, ever. You are always under somebody's authority. Whether you're at work or you're out on the road and, and driving, you are underneath somebody else's authority. And if you cannot learn how to put yourself willingly and joyfully under the authority of another in the home with parents that love you and provide for you and protect you and support you and encourage you and have your best in mind, if we're never able to figure out submission in that context, well, we're going to have a problem when we go to get employment. We're going to have a problem when we get pulled over. We're going to have a problem when we go to get married because submission is required in every context of life, no matter what. The home is the foundation for life. And consider Jesus again. Jesus is our example. If there was anybody in, this, in history that didn't need to submit, His name was Jesus, amen? But in Luke chapter 22, verse 41, when he was in the garden and the the cross was only hours away, as he got on his knees and he prayed before his God, he said, God, if this cup of your divine wrath that's about to be poured on me for all the sins of the world that I'm gonna take as I'm nailed to this cross, if there's any way this cup can pass before me, did Jesus want, humanly speaking, to go to the cross? The answer is no. No. He did not. But he said, Father, not my will, but here was a child, the Son of God, submitting himself to his father's will. At, watch this, kids, the expense of his own life. Kids, teenagers, obedience to your parents will probably never cost you your life. But here's what it will do. Obedience to your parents will prepare you for life. It will honor your heavenly father. And it will make you look like Jesus to all of your friends. Because they're going to wonder, why on earth do you submit to your parents? Your parents are lame. Your parents are, like we said all that when I was a Gen X kid, right? Now we have millennial kids telling us, you're lame and stupid boomers. Because you're going to look like Jesus when you do it. And you're going to prep yourself for life ahead. But let's look at the last category of relationships husbands and wives. And it says here in verses 18 and 19 wives submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. And husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Now, this may be some of the most unpopular verses in all of Scripture. I mean, if you want to hate on the Bible, this is pretty much where you go, right? Like, if people want to hate on the, on the Bible, they go to verses 18 through chapter 4, verse 1. And these verses have been, as we've said, used, uh, twisted, abused to hurt and subjugate other people, including women. And we just need to say this together. That was not Paul's intent. Let's say it. Not Paul's intent. Amen? Amen? It's sad to think that people, however, would use these verses in such a way to subjugate other people. But I think it's also equally sad that the pendulum has swung so far the other direction that now we despise June Cleaver. You remember June Cleaver from Leave it to Beaver? Okay, the, the, the kind, gentle, loving, patient housewife, right? We despise her in our culture, Because we think she's the antithesis of everything a strong woman should be. And now we worship people like Carrie Bradshaw from Sex and the City. As we have swung the complete opposite direction, and we have lost completely our anchor. And so let's look at what Paul is actually saying here in the text. What is he really trying to get at? Now, I want to ask a couple of questions of the text. First of all, let's read verse 18 and ask this question. Who is this verse written to? Verse 18, wives, pause. Who's the verse written to? I mean, I did a lot of Greek work to figure this answer out, and, um, but maybe you can just see it easier than I can. Who's it written to? Wives. wives. Is it written to all women? No. Raise your voice and say it. No, no it's not. Which means it's not written to all women who are supposed, it does not mean all women are supposed to submit to all men in all contexts and everywhere. That's not at all what the Bible is saying. Amen? It's not saying that. And wives, let me ask, wives, is this written to your husband? Do this. Everybody's a little bit more like, it's not written for you guys. It's not written to you and it's not written for you to hold over your wife's head and to remind her to submit to you. This verse is not for you. Get out of your wife's verse. (laughs) This verse is for your wife and for her between her and God. And if you have to come into the context and tell her to submit, you probably aren't worth being submitted to. Now, what does this mean? Hupota, uh, what does this, word, uh, this verse mean? Wives submit to your husbands, as is fitting to the Lord. What does all this mean? The word "hupotasso" in the Greek for "submit" is literally the word "yield." It literally means yield. So if you're in traffic and you're heading down the 76 down to uh, into the city, you're heading out of King of Prussia down 76 into the city, and you got all these merge points, right? You know what I'm talking about? All the merge points where traffic is coming on and everybody's fighting and battling to get in. And have you ever been there? You get nose to nose, bumper to bumper with that guy that's, he's getting in, Right? And he's getting in right in front of you. And you are like two inches away from the car in front of you. Because you're like, you ain't getting in, pal. You ain't getting in. And he keeps squirting in. Or squirting, inching in. <laughs> Sorry, I don't know what that Squirting. <laughs> he keeps trying to itch his way in. And finally you realize, if I don't yield, if somebody doesn't yield, we're going to get in an accident, right? That's what this word means. Is... Two strong people trying to figure out what is best for the family, but recognizing that eventually, if someone doesn't yield, a collision, an accident is going to occur. That is what this is referring to. And women, I want to say this. As I preach to you as a man, I understand it's it's a weird dynamic being a man preaching to women about this, and I I get that context, and I, I... Here's what I think is helpful. This has nothing to do with value. It has everything to do with function and role. Everything. We go all the way back to Genesis chapter one, verse 26, and God goes to great lengths to tell us, God created them in his image, male and female, male and female he made in his image. He says it frontwards then backwards to show us that men and women are equal in value as image bearers of God. However, he's made us distinct to reflect his character in uniquely different but complementary ways. And here's what I mean by that. You can take two completely distinct and different colors who are individual and distinct, but you put them together and it creates a beautiful work of art. You know what I'm talking about? Or you sit down and you have a a meal And you take two very different dishes that don't seem like they should go together, but you put them together and all of a sudden there's this explosion of taste that is delicious and beautiful, right? And what God is saying is he has made us, male and female, different by design so that when we come together, we create a beautiful picture of the character of God that is hard to see any other way. So again, I say this, men and women are equal in value, but distinct in how they reflect the image of God. And I would use the illustration of the Trinity to remind us of this. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all equal, amen? But are they distinct in role? Right. Uh, the Father does things that the Son doesn't. The Son does things that the Holy Spirit doesn't, and on and on it goes. Now, are they equal in value? But are they different? Yes, they are. And so goes the husband and the wife. We are equal in value. Jesus was equal to the Father, but did he yield to the Father? Yes, he did. Husbands and wives have been called to shine a spotlight on the character of God, but to do it in uniquely different ways. And that spotlight is complementary. So let me say this, as it says here in the text, wives are called to f- reflect the character of God through submission. Now, wives, if we think that uh, that means you got to get uh, women, let me say this. If you, that, Let me start over. This is, this is really hard, to preach on. I, I, so I hope you feel my awkwardness and my weirdness in doing this, but it's the scriptures and it's for our good because I believe that God inspired this and it's for our good. So that's why we do this, all right? And, th- and by the way, this is why we do expository preaching because I can't skip over it, right? I can't just go from chapter 3 verse 17 down to 4 two, although I wish I could. <laughs> so let me say this. Wives are called to reflect the character of God and to do it through submission. And let me say this. Women, if we think that submission means that we have to get married, have a dozen babies, be stay-at-home mom, clean toilets, um, completely forego a career, chuck your brain at the door, forfeit your agency, tolerate abuse, become June Cleaver, bury your gifts, um, deny your personality, and become a bobblehead yes-man, if that's what you think submission is, you're dead wrong. Let me say this. God calls you women to be strong. To be intelligent, to be hard workers, to be assertive, to be truth-tellers. We look at Proverbs 31, and that's a strong woman. That's a strong woman. A woman who works hard and is industrious and and diligent and assertive and and, and smart. But she is called to use those in cooperative ways to help her husband and the spiritual leadership of the home. As Christ was strong and intelligent and hardworking and assertive and truth-telling, but he submitted himself to the Father's plan and cooperation made redemption possible. Wives, it is important for us to remember that we should not confuse function and role with value and worth. Because here's the thing. If submission devalues you, then it would devalue Jesus too and make him less than God. Jesus was God, but revealed his father through his submission. And wives, you have an ability to reveal the character of God through your submission in the home. Husbands, you have the greater calling, though. And you have the greater calling to love. Verse 19, husbands, love your wives, love your wives, and do not be harsh. I think a lot of the times the headline, um, we think of the headlines as uh, wives submit, husbands lead, right? Have you ever heard of that? What are the responsibilities in the home? Husbands, or, or wives submit, husbands lead. But that's not the headline. What does it say? Wives submit, husbands what? Love. And how are they supposed to love in the home? Ephesians chapter 5 verse 25 says, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. The husband's leadership in the home should be characterized by his love for his family. Headship, authority, leadership in the home is not a right to rule. It's a responsibility to self-sacrificially serve. And again, we look to Jesus, Matthew 20, verse 28. Jesus says, the Son of Man did not come to serve and to be served. I'm sorry. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And that should be the life verse of every husband in this room, that you have been called to serve your family. My wife and my family do not exist to serve my dreams, my comforts, my rights, my preferences. I exist as a husband to serve them. Guys, let's look at John 13 for a second as we turn over John 13. And I'll leave you with this. You'll see here in the text that Jesus is, right before he's about to go to the cross, we find Jesus washing the feet of the disciples. The disciples are about to have the last dinner, and he does something unexpected. He takes off his outer garment. He serves his disciples by washing their feet. Now, this was not a random choice that Jesus made. It was a picture of his sacrificial love that he was about to do on the cross, because as Jesus went to the cross, he took off his outer garments of righteousness and washed our sin away. Do you see it? It was a picture of what Jesus was about to do. And men, this is a picture of what we are called to do. We are called to take off our robes of righteousness in the home. Our preferences, our rights, our dreams, our demand to lay our robes aside, to kneel down before our family and humbly on our knees serve our wife and our kids with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength for their flourishing and their good. Husbands, that is what you have been called to do. And husbands, when you take off those rights, those privileges, those comforts, those dreams to serve your family, your family will thrive. Your family will thrive. So I think we see from this text, when Jesus reigns supreme, it really does start to change everything, doesn't it? Inside and outside, in the home, at work, in our families, in our relationships, and this is how we shine the light of Jesus. And our employer-employee relationships, and our father-children relationships, our parent-children relationships, and our husband and wives relationships, we have all been called to shine the light of Jesus Christ in unique and complementary ways. And so church, this is a hard text, amen? But it's how we show the world that Jesus truly reigns supreme on the throne of our hearts. Let's pray. Father, as we close out this morning, we recognize that this is a hard text. It's challenging. But Father, we, we, we believe it because it's true, that when Christ is at the center of it, the center of our lives, it yields good fruit. So, Father, I pray, God, um, I beg, I implore of you that my words have been clear, um, that I have been faithful and accurate to the text, that I have represented it well. But more importantly, Father, I pray, God, that now as all of us have heard very challenging confrontational truth, God, that we would willingly surrender ourselves to it. That God, we would not just pretend that it's not there, that we would not ignore it and just go back to our lives as usual, but Father, that we would truly respond to your good word as needed for the flourishing of our homes, for the advance of the gospel at work, God that you would help us to respond in obedience, we pray in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this audio from Harvest Bible Chapel, Philadelphia. For more audio, content, and information about our church, visit harvestphiladelphia.org.